I'll invite you to take your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and we will read from verse 1 to verse 18. You may remember in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1, the people called to Ezra and said, bring the book of the law of Moses. And in verse 5, when Ezra opened the book, the Bible says that they all stood up. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word, please. And I invite you this morning to give your undivided attention to the words of the one only living and true God from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 to 18. Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Certainly he is good, certainly his faithfulness is everlasting. And the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their post and the Levites also with the musical instruments for the Lord which the King David which King David had made for giving praise to the Lord for his faithfulness is everlasting. Whenever David gave praise through their ministry the priests on the other side blew trumpets and all Israel was standing. Then Solomon consecrated the middle of the courtyard that was before the house of the Lord, for he offered the burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings there, because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to contain the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fat. So Solomon held the feast at the time for seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great assembly that came from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly because they held the dedication of the altar for seven days and the feast for seven days. Then on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their tents rejoicing and happy in heart because of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, to Solomon and to his people Israel. So Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's palace and successfully completed everything that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, Or if I send a plague among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house so that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there always. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked 
to do everything, sorry, to do according to everything that I have commanded you and keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man to be a ruler in Israel. And thus ends the reading of God's precious word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, this morning we come again, and as we have stood with the word of God open before us and heard its words, Father, we pray that we would now hear your voice speaking to our hearts from the scriptures. Father, I pray again that my voice might fall silent at the edge of the pulpit, but your voice would speak to every one of us that we would hear the message that you have for us from this text. Father, we ask you that the power of the Holy Spirit would move amongst us, challenging us and rebuking us and comforting and consoling us. Father, we pray that each of us would come this morning with a hunger and a thirst to hear from you, that we have come, O God, that you would hear and you would supply. Father, we pray for your blessing. Father, we pray for those who are here this morning that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. We pray, O God, that the Spirit of God would open their eyes, the eyes of their heart, to see the reality of the glory of the holiness of the living God and their own sin, and to know that He has come, Jesus has come, and suffered and bled and died for them. Father, we pray that you would give them the faith to believe and draw them to yourself. Lord, we ask you for a work of the Holy Spirit on us all this morning, and we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Ezra wrote Chronicles probably around 445 B.C., give or take a decade or so, for the returnees who had come back from exile. They're living under foreign rule. They're surrounded by antagonistic enemies. They're awaiting the promised king and kingdom, and they're wondering how they should now live. And Ezra wrote, I should say, scholars believe, and most Jewish scholars would emphatically believe that Ezra wrote the Chronicles. I think there's good reason uh, to argue that. But Ezra wrote with a pastoral intention to provide a spiritual interpretation of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings so that the returnees would have spiritual instruction and faith and repentance, godliness and obedience from all the object lessons taken from the history of Israel. And so Chronicles has much to say to us today. The Lord's people, Old Testament and New Testament, are those who are called by the Lord's name. We have been brought into a relationship with the living God. And we, just like Old Testament Israel, are prone to wander and fall into sin. I think if we all take a moment of brutal honesty with the word of God open before us, we would all admit that we are prone to wander. As I studied the text, my my mind was to bring a message on prayer. That's what I was going. But as I studied and read, my goal always is to let the text speak for itself, to bring a message that the text is giving. And I realized that the message of this text is more about revival than about prayer. But of course, the two are, are very tightly connected. So to give you the message in a nutshell, the Lord turns his people's hearts back to himself through his providential working 
so that we can respond in humility and prayer and godly living and repentance of sin. And in response, the Lord will keep his promises to hear our prayers, forgive our sin, and bring healing and restoration amongst us. I realized throughout the course of this week, and I realized with the struggle I had in preparing it, just how necessary this message was for all of us, starting with me and finishing with all of you. We need to hear it. So my brothers and sisters this morning, my dear friend, if you're here and your desire, your love, your devotion to God has begun to grow cool and even cold, well then this message is for you. If you've allowed sin to creep in and take root in your life, Perhaps you're dealing with the bitter consequences of sin and they seem unending and the heavens seem silent to your call. Then I assure you this message is indeed for you. Perhaps you're here for the very first time and you want to know what Christianity is really all about. Why we live and worship the way we do. Well then this message is also for you. I want you to notice, first of all, I'll give you the outline. If you should have a little yellow slip like this in the bulletin that was given to you. The outline for us this morning, number one, the Lord's presence with us. Secondly, the Lord's providence towards us. Thirdly, the Lord's prescription for us. And fourthly, the Lord's promises to us. So notice, first of all, the Lord's presence with us. In 2 Chronicles 6, verses 12 to 42, Solomon has offered this great long dedication prayer for the temple and the altar. In 2 Chronicles 7, 1 to 3, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the sacrifices. The Lord's glory fills the temple. The priests are unable to enter and minister. Can you imagine what that must have been like for those people? But you know, brothers and sisters, the glory of the Lord is here this morning. Not visible like that, but in the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Lord amongst his people. The priests are unable to enter and minister, and the people fall on their faces and worship and praise the Lord. And then 2 Chronicles 7, verses 4 to 11, Solomon offers a great multitude of sacrifices. The priests are all in their places. The Levites are playing the musical instruments, and the trumpets are blowing. The smoke and fire rises from this immense pile of offerings there in the middle of the temple courtyard, and they celebrate the feast. And the people depart rejoicing and happy because of the goodness of the Lord shown to David and Solomon and Israel. And then in 2 Chronicles 7 verses 12 to 22, the Lord responds to Solomon's prayer. He has accepted Solomon's temple as the place where his presence will abide. Up until this point now, it's always been the tabernacle which was kept over at Shiloh. But now it's here. And the thing is, things have changed a little bit. His presence now abides here. He will meet with his people. He will accept their offerings and sacrifices, and he will hear their prayers. The temple is the place where relationship with God was expressed. God's presence is always part of his relationship with mankind. God's presence with his people is proof of our relationship with him. If you want evidence to know for certain that you're truly a believer, you're truly born again, the one unshakable piece of evidence that you can have is the presence of the Spirit of God within. It was how they determined whether or not to baptize the Gentile believers. 
Who can withhold baptism for they have received the Holy Spirit as we did? The presence of the Spirit of God is the proof of our relationship with him. And God comes to us because we won't seek for him. The Bible tells us in Romans 3, 9 to 18, that none seeks for the Lord. None has any fear of God left to ourselves. We will never seek for the Lord. But praise the Lord. Give thanks to God on high that he came and he initiated a relationship with us. If you're here this morning, you're not here just because somebody invited you. You're here because God has worked to bring you here. And he's still working. And what you notice, the Lord's presence was in the garden, enjoyed by Adam and Eve in perfection and holiness and uprightness. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 29 that God has made man upright. And before their rebellion, Adam and Eve knew what it was to relate to God, albeit knowing neither sin nor God's saving grace. Don't ever desire to go back to the garden. We know something they didn't know at that point. We know saving grace and kindness of God. At that point before the fall, they were there without sin. But as soon as they exercised their own will and rebellion against God, there was a distance, a separation, an estrangement that happened. There was shame and fear where once there had been openness, honesty, trust, and acceptance. First, they hid themselves from each other. You notice what they did? They took garments of leaves and wrapped them around to hide from each other. Secondly, they hid from the presence of God among the trees. They had become disobedient, rebellious sinners. They and we, our descendants, had gained a sin nature, and they'd become spiritually dead, separated from God. They'd broken that fellowship with God they once had. Brother and sister, my dear friend, sin will always break man's fellowship with God. But God in grace, in that time in the garden, he came to them. God always initiates restoration. Man will not and cannot. God in grace questioned them to draw a confession of sin from them. And then God in grace provides for them both a lasting covering in the skins of an animal, covering their nakedness, and a substitute for the death they so justly deserve. For God had given them a rule. In the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. I can't help the King James. I love the King James Version. Some some renderings are just beautiful in its poetry. And I heard that text preached by a very dear friend of mine so many times. You surely die. Oh, beloved, can you imagine that moment? They'd never seen death. They had no idea what it was like. And there at their feet was this animal, bloody and lifeless and still, and the skins of that animal being wrapped around them, still warm from the animal, and the the horrible sensation that they were now clothed in death covered them. We portray it in artwork like a beautiful moment. I don't think it was beautiful at all. I think it would have been a horrific moment in realizing what they had done. But God provided And God in grace promised one to come who will save his people. God in grace drove them out of the garden and away from his presence because of sin. 
The Lord's presence was also with Israel, his people, but separated. He resided above the mercy seat of the ark seat on the ark of the covenant inside the tabernacle and temple. His glorious presence was hidden behind a heavy veil. One man, once a year, not without blood, could go in, and he for a few moments could offer the blood of atonement as the smoke of the censer and the incense rose up before his face, obscuring his view, and all of it promised and pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming. The Lord's presence was with his people, but separated. Thirdly, the Lord's presence was among his people in the person of Christ. This is December, right? It's the beginning of the Christmas season where we celebrate the birth of the king. Emmanuel, God with us. In incomprehensible grace, the Son of God took on flesh, born as the man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. He dwelt amongst us, and they beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 1 to 18 talks about. He came sinless and perfect, truly God and truly man. He lived and walked and preached and healed the sick and cleansed the lepers. He raised the dead and he calmed storms. He fed thousands with a few loaves and a few fish. And then he... The presence of God among his people paid the ultimate price with his life, suffering, death, and resurrection. And in that moment, he soothed and removed God's wrath, which was intended for us. He conquered sin and death, hell and the grave. He reconciled us to God through his death and resurrection. And he paid our penalty that we deserve for our sin. Oh, brother and sister. My friend sitting here, he died for your sin and he died for mine. If that doesn't shake you to your core, something's wrong. And he calls us to repent of sin and believe the gospel. For example, in Mark 1, 14 to 15, in Acts 20 and 20 to 21, Jesus came first and the first recorded words out of Jesus' mouth, repent and believe the gospel. And the disciples preached the same message, repent and believe the gospel. And the Bible then tells us in Ephesians 1 verse 13 that having heard and believed the truth, we are filled with the presence of God's Holy Spirit. And so fourthly, God's, the Lord's presence indwells his people in the person of his Holy Spirit. Jesus rather than remain amongst us, sent another whom he described in John 16 and verse 7 as to our advantage. Having him is better than seeing the Lord's glory enter the temple. Having Jesus, having the spirit of God within us, which is the spirit of Jesus, is so much better than being out in the wilderness and seeing above the tabernacle, way off in a distance, a column of fire and a column of cloud by day. So much better than that. Even better than walking around Galilee behind Jesus as he walked and talked and healed and cleansed lepers and so on. So much better. Jesus said it himself is to have the spirit of God dwelling within. The spirit of God indwells his people, his church, both individually, as 1 Corinthians 3.16 makes clear, and corporately, as Ephesians 2.21 and 22 makes clear. 
I said it before, I'll say it again. The undeniable, unshakable evidence and proof of the reality of our relationship and fellowship with God is the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit within us. We who believe the gospel and repent of sin are the Lord's people. We are called by the Lord's name, Christians. We're those who are saved by Christ and believing in Christ and belonging to Christ and following Christ and enjoying the sweetest fellowship any human heart can ever know with Christ. So my friend, this morning, have you heard and truly believed the gospel? Have you turned away from your sin and turned toward God? Someone asked me in jest a couple weeks ago, always preaching the gospel. And, and I just said, get used to it. And I was kidding too. Why? Why do I take every opportunity to present the message of the gospel? Because my great fear, in all seriousness, is many of us know the facts. We know the truth. We've heard the message, we understand it, and we agree with it. But do we believe it? Because belief changes everything. That's why I keep preaching it, and I plead with you to keep listening. I plead with you this morning, believe the gospel and repent of sin. I want you to notice, secondly, the Lord's providence toward us in verse 13. The Old Testament people of God were in a relationship of sorts with God. He was with them, albeit separated and behind the veil. They're his people whom he delivered from slavery in Egypt. He formed them into a nation. He gave them covenants and laws and tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices and the offerings. They are his people, yet... They're still stubborn, hard-hearted, continually wandering away, repeatedly leaving the Lord their God to pursue the utterly depraved and idolatrous life and worship of their ungodly Canaanite neighbors. But the Lord in rich grace all through their history worked to hold them fast, to sustain his relationship with them, to jealously pursue his people's love and devotion. And I'm convinced... He did it with Christ's coming always in view so that through the redemption Christ would provide, they could be brought into the same spirit-filled fellowship with God that we as believers in Christ now enjoy. But without the endless offering of blood sacrifices, because as Hebrews tells us very clearly, the old covenant has become obsolete and it's disappearing. God continually provided, sorry, God continued providentially working to bring his people called by his name back to himself. Some of you may wonder, what in the world is providence? It was a word used much in the last, or I guess century and a half ago now, but not used so much anymore. Providence is God's whole, his holy, wise, and powerful acts to preserve, direct, arrange, and govern all creatures and things to bring them to the purpose for which they were created. Notice what he says in verse 13, if, or some versions use, when I shut or command or send. Notice who's in control there. The Lord God is in control. I'm sorry if it, it rubs you the wrong way, Actually, I'm not. I I wish you'd understand. There is no maverick molecule in the universe. 
No ant, no locust, no bug, no fly, nothing moves in its completely random way of its own making and choosing. God is in control of it all. And the point is this, God promised Solomon that when his people turned away to sin, he would use weather, creatures, even disease to both punish them for their sin, but also so much more important to bring them back to himself in humility and prayer and righteousness and repentance. The Lord shut up the heavens. He promised that to bring drought and thirst. The Lord sent locusts to bring famine and hunger. The Lord sent pestilence to bring sickness and weakness. And you say, why would the Lord respond with these actions? And you recognize it's a very fitting response to their sin to make a very clear point to them and to us. Sin always has to do with what we value most. If we we value God most highly, we'll strive to please him above all else. We'll strive to obey and worship him above all else. We'll strive to honor and glorify him in all we do. But if we value our own desires, our own independence, our own self-government, we will choose those desires, our desires, over God's commands. We will choose our own way, not God's way. We will choose our own satisfaction over honoring God. And the people of Israel, before the exile, repeatedly chose their neighbors' utterly depraved idol worship over the worship of the one true God of the Bible. There's one scene in one of the prophets, I think it's Jeremiah, might be Ezekiel, where he tells Ezekiel to go out and look and see what's going on in the city. And Ezekiel walks into the temple, and all the men in the temple have their backs to the altar, and they're worshiping the rising sun in the morning. The, the worship of the creator is this way, but they're worshiping the creature, the sun. You say, what, what a calamity, what a disaster. And so the Lord providentially brought these calamities to them to induce his people to thirst and to hunger, to crave strength and wholeness that can only be found in the Lord their God. And beyond the rain and the crops and the health, What the Lord wanted was for his people to hunger and thirst for him. To hunger and thirst for him is their soul's life-sustaining nourishment. He desires them and us today to have the psalmist's heart who wrote like this. Listen, Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He wrote in Psalm 63 in verse 1, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You catch that? In a place where there's no water, what does he want for? God. You see, God used the, 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 the drought and the famine and the pestilence to turn his hearts of his people back to him, that they would cry out and long and search for him. The problem today that we have is the same as them. And we have no excuse for we have the Holy Spirit. They didn't. We so easily and quickly wander and drift into sin. The hymn writer said it so well, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. 
We're filled and indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and yet we so easily begin to desire and to look for satisfaction in other things besides the Lord. Just as with old, as Israel in the Old Testament, God sovereignly, providentially works in our lives to turn our hearts back to himself. He works to induce in us a hunger and a thirst for him above all else. What's the Bible say? What's, what's Paul saying? Philippians? For it is God who works in you both to will, that's desire, and to do for his good pleasure. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's a source of grief in one sense, but a source of great joy in another. Our God will hold us fast. Is that what we were singing? And he uses all sorts of means to induce in us that hunger and that thirst for the living God. So the question, do we thirst for God above all else? Do we hunger like a drought-stricken man craving a drop of water? Do we thirst? Do we hunger for a God like a starving man craves, craves a crumb of bread? Do we desire his will above our own regardless of the cost? Isn't it funny, eh? We discern God's will and we start checking the price tags. Yeah, but that will cost me. Well, that will cost this. You know, just I'm not sure if I can. Well, you know, I mean, really, I mean, how can it be the Lord's will? It's going to take me like I'll have to use all my savings for this. It couldn't possibly be God's will. Oh, you know, I'll have to sell my house and my car. I'll have to move my family. I'll have to do this, that, the other thing. I'll quit to quit my job. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Abraham coming home? Hi, Sarah. Hi, Abraham. Or Sarai and Abram. Ah, the Lord spoke to me today. Oh, good. And, and we're leaving. You're leaving. No, no, we're leaving. Everything? Yes. What about our family? Well, actually, we have to leave them too. And we're going to go, where are we going? He hasn't actually told me yet. We're just going to get up and leave. Can you imagine? And we chuckle and we laugh because we know the end of the story, Right? But the reality is that Abram got up not knowing where he was going, packed up his wife and all of his wealth and possession and herds and flocks and camels and donkeys and everything else. And off they went to follow the Lord. And God had worked in his life to draw him to follow what God had laid before him. And brothers and sisters in Christ, when God puts a hunger in our lives for him, why? Because he wants our undivided affection and love. Well, he wants me to go to Australia and preach the gospel. I might have thought that back when I was in Canada. And I got here and realized God didn't need me to come to Australia to preach the gospel. He could have raised up thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of other men and women to preach the gospel. What he wanted was me to obey him. What he wanted was me to put aside... The things I held so dear, let them go, so I'd follow. Brother and sister in Christ, do we thirst for God above all? Do we hunger for God? Do we desire his will above our own regardless of the cost? Do we desire his intimate, sweet fellowship above and before anything else? Oh, beloved, listen, has a job 
a career, a person, money, pleasure, achievements, sex, alcohol? Is there something else that you have allowed to become an idol to you in your life so that you want it more than you want for God? Listen, Christian, and I speak to every one of us, make no mistake For us to desire anything more than we desire God is sin. God will not take second place in our lives. If you don't believe me, read Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament. And you'll see it over and over and over and over again. And Israel kept pushing God aside and God kept saying, no, I won't have it. The wonderful thing is, The wonderful, amazing, glorious thing is when he is the object of our greatest delight and affection, he fills us with an indescribable joy and gladness and peace. We know lasting satisfaction and fulfillment beyond anything that all the other junk in this world could ever possibly give. Psalm 1611, this is what the Bible says, you will make known to me the way of life. Drawing the people, the psalmist to himself, in your presence is fullness of joy, in your right hand are pleasures forever. Psalmist said it in Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, comma, I shall not want. In other words, the shepherd was everything to the sheep. He had it all in having the shepherd. In Psalm 37, verse 4, the Bible says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you delight yourself in the Lord, what is the desire of your heart? The Lord. Isn't that cool? You delight yourself in him, and he will give you that desire. But if I delight myself in all the fading, crumbling junk of the world, I just get sorrow and weariness and tiredness and emptiness. In Psalm 36 and verse 8, he says, They drink their fill of the abundance of your, that's God's house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. Listen, beloved. We who believe the gospel and repent of sin, we are the Lord's people and dwelt with his Holy Spirit. We are his people towards whom he providentially works to hold us fast, inducing us in us a hunger and a thirst for him. So then how should we respond? Which brings us to the third point, the Lord's prescription for us. He says, when I bring all these things and my people who are called. If you have, by the way, look at your Bible in verse 13 and verse 14. If you have a period or a full stop in Australia, right after my people, it shouldn't be. It should be a comma and they, sorry, and my people who are called by my name. So he puts them all in a line together. One will lead to the other. Bringing drought and famine and pestilence will lead to his people humbling himself, themselves and so on. So we have a prescription for us for how we should respond. The Lord's prescription for us How we respond is clearly prescribed for us. 
We're not free to respond any way we choose. It's something laid out for us. We must, first of all, humble ourselves. Second, we must pray. And thirdly, we must seek his face. And fourthly, we must turn from our wicked ways. By the way, that's not like an Ikea project where you put all the pieces together. You know, do not start step two until you have completed step one. It's like start step one and then halfway through add step two and then halfway through that add step three. And then you just keep doing the whole thing. All of them continue all the way through the process. So first of all, he says, humble themselves. How do we do that? What does it mean to humble ourselves before the Lord? The idea of the word is to submit, to reduce, to make ourselves low and small. It's so easy to be humble when you're in the presence of someone or something that's immensely great, which is exactly the way we humble ourselves, is to see to gaze on, to meditate on the greatest being of all, to contemplate his greatness and his attributes, to meditate on his person and his works of creation and providence and redemption. We had a great Bible study on Wednesday night. I'm going to embarrass Ricky and mention her name. She shared with us a little bit about how she used to, or she still does, meditate on the Lord. And she said, I have an overwhelming sense of smallness. I thought, she got it. She nailed it. This is exactly what happens as we come before the living God and we meditate on his greatness and his person and his worth and his value. All of a sudden, we feel ourselves small. We recognize how insignificant and inconsequential we really are. And then we discover that God loves us with a love so great that he would send the Lord Jesus to die for us. And that humbles us even more, doesn't it? We humble ourselves. It's what the psalmist said in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. In Psalm 145, verses 5 and 6, it's a text I sent out in the middle of the week, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and your wonderful works, I will meditate Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. How do we humble ourselves? Stop and look. Gaze on the glory of God in the pages of Scripture. Meditate on the greatness of God. Walk out inside and see the creation that God has built and made. See the story of redemption in the Scriptures and humble yourself as you meditate on that. Seeing the glory of the Lord immediately induces in us a sense of our own utter smallness and insignificance and worthlessness. I said it before, I'll say it again. Then to consider what Christ paid to redeem us and to know that we're loved with a love we can never measure humbles us even more. Oh, brother and sister in Christ, If something has taken the place of God in your desires and affections, I plead with you, humble yourself before the Lord. Secondly, we must pray to the Lord. It's lift up our heart and our soul before the Lord. Let's cry out to him in the assurance that our prayers offered in faith will be heard. Prayer is the purest expression of faith. Why are we pushing as a leadership, and we are, to get more people involved in our prayer meetings? 
Because when we come together and we gather around God and we lift up our voices and our hearts in prayer, it's the purest expression of faith. It is simply a small child asking their great father for something that they cannot, they cannot do for themselves. It's asking God. It's crying out to God. It's crying out to him, by the way, in absolute honesty. For the one who sees our hearts and knows our thoughts as they form and discerns our words before they're spoken surely knows the truthfulness of the things we pray. Let's be honest in our prayers. I'll I'll say it this, and I have a real concern for the reverence that we show God. But better to be bluntly honest than dishonestly reverent. As you meditate on the Lord and the sense of, your own, of our own lowness and smallness increases, even in your honesty there will be a reverence and a godly fear in your, in your prayers. Brother and sister, be honest with God. When we come before God and we meditate on him, the reality of our sin and our sinfulness will become increasingly apparent to us. So our prayer and crying and humility before the God will become confession of sins. And in those moments, name your sin before God. So why? That's, sometimes that's a pretty horrible thing to say before God. Yes, but he knows it. And when you agree with God about your sin... And you humble yourself before the one who can forgive and bring healing. When you're honest about your sin, then God can begin to work. In those moments, name your sin before God because he knows it anyways. Thirdly, we must seek the Lord's face. We search for him in the scriptures and we seek to discover, to possess, to understand the Lord. But it's so much more than that. Humility and prayer must be accompanied by two other things as we return to wholehearted fellowship with the Lord. First is a renewed obedience, and second is a discontinued disobedience. To seek the Lord's face in Scripture. By the way, you know the phrase, seek his face or seek the Lord? It comes up most often, and guess which two books of the Bible? I found this out this couple days ago. Chronicles, of all places. And what did did Ezra mean by the idea of seeking the Lord's face? It's more than just searching for him. It literally means to orient our lives to him and his ways. It means to live in an active faith and obedience to God, to be diligent in obedience to the commands of the Lord, to oppose wrong living and promote right living before the Lord. It's living righteously in the power of the Holy Spirit for us in our context. You say, we, what's the gospel? Repent of sin and believe the gospel. What does repentance mean? It means putting away sin, turning away from sin. But that's only half the story. We turn away from sin and we turn toward God at the same time. Which means we put off the old ungodly actions and we put on new godly righteous actions. Which is exactly what Ezra's saying here. To seek the Lord's face in Scripture means to orient our lives to Him and His ways. It means to live in active faith and obedience. It means to be diligent in obedience to the commands of the Lord, to oppose wrong living and to promote right living. 
It's righteous living in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's exactly what Paul said in Colossians 3. Listen to what he said. Verses 12, I'll read to 14. I encourage you to read to verse 18 when you have a moment this afternoon. He said, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, meaning forgive them. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And I encourage you to go back this afternoon, get Colossians 3 out and read it. It's putting on Christ. To seek the Lord is to change our ways and live before the Lord. And fourthly, we must turn from our wicked ways. Listen. Christian life cannot be lived as a compilation of those things that please the Lord and a hands full of displeasing things we keep just back in our back pocket in case we feel a little bit odd. How many of us do that? Right? The Christian life cannot be lived as a compilation of those things that please the Lord and a handful of displeasing things. We cannot, we must not settle for Christ plus a few other idols. That's what Israel did and they knew God's judgment for it. We cannot, we must not even for a moment give place to the hypocritical life. One face for church, another one for everywhere else. We're called to repent of sin, to turn from our wicked ways. We're called to put off the old man and his old ways. And again, in Paul's words in Colossians 3, he says this, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth, and so on. We are the Lord's people called by his name, and we are filled with the presence of his Holy Spirit. We experience God's gracious providential work toward us to turn us back to himself in humility and prayer, seeking his face and repenting of sin for which God makes three great promises. He said, how is all this possible? In my own strength? Never. But God's power is at work in you. What did, what did he say? Philippians chapter, uh, I think it's 1, verses 12 and 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's po- all those things are possible because God is at work. You feel that drawing in your heart and your soul? You, you know. You know for a certainty there's something, and you can name it specifically, that you have made an idol in your life and it is tearing your Christian walk apart and you feel that coldness towards God. You have no desire for his word. Going to church is like, I got to go because if I don't go, everybody's going to wonder where I am and why I didn't show up and they're going to call me and then I'm going to have to either dodge the phone call from Pastor Nelson or give an answer. I'm not looking to chase you down. I'm looking to help you get rid of the idol. I have to fight in my own life to put aside things that quickly rear up and become idols. My poor wife for 30 years has endured a man who is like one thing and then another and then another one. He just focus. And every once in a while, halfway through a sentence, I'll jump focuses and it drives her crazy. The problem is those things that I focus on and fixate on 
become idols. And the greatest challenge to me sitting here yesterday in my study writing and early this morning sitting there working through the notes of this sermon was this. What about you? What about the idols in my life? And I'm preaching to my own heart as much as I'm preaching to you and trusting God's spirit to speak to you as I know he's speaking to me. We are the Lord's people, called by his name. We're filled with the presence of his Holy Spirit. He will not tolerate being second place. We experience God's gracious, providential work toward us. One of the ways that God works in my life is putting texts in front of me that I can't shake off. And as I struggle and wrestle to prepare a message, I know the Lord's speaking to my own heart. We experience God's gracious providential work toward us to turn us back to himself in humility and prayer, seeking his face and repenting of sin, for which God makes three great promises. He prom- I'm just going to list them off because we're running out of time. He promises to hear our prayers. You know what the Bible says? One of my favorite verses, and I got lots of them. To this one I will look, he that is what? Humble and contrite in heart and who trembles at my word. Brother and sister in Christ, when we turn back to the Lord in humility and prayer and seeking his face and putting away our wicked ways, the Lord hears our prayers. He turns his face of approval towards you. You ever walk through a room and you see someone in a bit of distance, you call out their name and you wonder, I was in a parking lot one time and I had a friend, hadn't seen him for years. He was parked behind me about three places back and I'm walking towards the, it was a slag lumber in Canada and I heard this voice, Nelson? And I stopped and I turned around and I looked back and I didn't quite recognize for a second and I was like, ah, oh, dude, and I remember, it was Pete. I said, Hey. And we ran together and we hugged each other. In that moment when his face turned and my face turned, it was a moment of recognition and a moment of joy as we realized who the other person was. And we ran together and we hugged up. And we had a great time. It was Jonathan Zerke. Sorry. It doesn't matter. But you know that moment? The Bible says that when we humble ourselves and we're contrite in spirit and we seek the Lord, the Bible tells us that he turns and looks toward us and that relationship is restored. Some of the sweetest moments in prayer before the Lord with my Bible open as I poured out my heart to him and I confessed my sin and I pleaded with the Lord for forgiveness was knowing that smile was mine. He promises to hear our prayers. He promises to forgive our sin. Old Testament Israel must bring a sacrifice that points to Christ. The Old Testament Israelites must offer in faith of God's forgiveness. Our offering has already been made and accepted. The Lord Jesus Christ has died in our place that we might be forgiven. And we come in faith and repentance and we ask for God's forgiveness. And God says, I will forgive. It's not like our forgiveness either, by the way. We're good at forgiving and poor at forgetting. The Bible says that he casts our sins away from us as far as the east is from the west. He chooses never to recall it again. Christ's blood has washed it out of his memory, if I can say it that way. 
And thirdly, the Lord promises to heal the land. Now, in Old Testament Israel, there was a literal healing of the land, the healing of droughts, devastation, the healing of the locusts, devastation. You go to the book of Joel and you read about the locusts that came in. And the great promise at the end of the book of Joel is this, the Lord will restore the years the locusts have eaten. You ever seen what locusts do to a land? Strip it down to the ground. There's nothing left. And what does God promise? I'll restore those years. There'll be fruit. There'll be joy. There'll be crops. There'll be feasting. There'll be, the famine will be history. There won't be a drought anymore. And the reality is, brother and sister, as we wrestle and struggle under God's disciplining hand, and we turn in repentance, and we turn in faith to God, confessing sin and humbling ourselves before the Lord, he does indeed restore the years the locusts have eaten. And we know again joy and fruitfulness in our walk with the Lord. Oh, beloved, what a great God we have. What a great God that he doesn't just stand aloof from us and say, oh, I'm not doing anything until you get back over here. No, he reaches out. And using all types of means at his disposal, he turns our heart. He works to put the desire for him back. And when we come in humility, and we come seeking his face, and we come crying to him in prayer, the wonderful promise of scripture is he will hear, and he will forgive, and he will bring healing. We celebrate this feast, the Lord's Supper, with a very particular thing in mind. We celebrate what Christ has done for us and what Christ has done is reconcile us and forgive us and cleanse us and wash us and welcome us, as it were, around his banqueting table and inviting us to share in him. What a great God we serve, amen? I'm going to give you a few moments to just spend before the Lord before we go to the Lord's table. And I want to read a verse before I do. My encouragement to us all this morning, before we take that little piece of bread and that little cup of juice, this is what the Bible says. In uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and 28, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a person must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So my call to us all this morning as we go to the Lord's table is to stop. And before the Lord, examine your own heart. What idols have you allowed to be in place? And I'm calling on you to tear them down. Put them away. And in humility, seek the Lord, and then we'll remember the Lord together. I'll just give you a few minutes.
Loving Father, this morning we stand and we marvel at your grace. We stand back, Lord, in in speechless wonder. You, in your grace and your mercy and your kindness toward us, even when we were still sinners, you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for us. You displayed such love to us. And in grace, O God, you called us through the preaching of the gospel to repent and believe. You worked in our hearts, as Paul says, both to will and to do. You use, you have, and you still use all means. All of creation is at your disposal to induce in us a desire, a hunger, and a thirst for you. You work in us, O God, to turn us back to yourself. And then in grace, as we confess our sin and plead for forgiveness, you hear and you forgive and you bring healing. Loving Father, this morning we just bow in worship before you, for there is no God like you. Almighty, most holy, most kind and gracious and good. Oh God, we thank you and we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ who was willing to lay aside, to veil his glories, to come, born truly man and truly God, to live his life on this earth, preaching and teaching and healing and cleansing and raising the dead. Father, he displayed your glory to us. He displayed Also, your justice as he endured the cross for us. He displayed your kindness as he took our place. Father, we give thanks this morning for the Lord Jesus. We do so in his own precious name. Amen.